Good afternoon, everybody. Hi, everybody. On this cloudy Tuesday, yeah, here we are. Sun, sunny Monday. Sunny uh, Monday, cloudy, cloudy Tuesday. Tuesday. And cold Tuesday. Yep. Yesterday's pretty chilly, too. Yeah. So, but hey, so if I sound a little hoarse today or a little, or I act a little foggy, <laughs> it's because we went to a Mavs game last night. Um, for Christmas, Matt and Courtney gave us a Mavs game uh, deal where with them. So all six of us, Matt and Courtney, our son Matt, daughter-in-law Courtney, two and the grand. two grandsons, Nate and Will, and the two of us all went down to the Mavs game. And it was, it was great. great. One of the best parts of the gift, actually, was that Matt came and picked us up. Yeah. Otherwise, <laughs> we don't we don't go out much at night. I don't drive at night anymore at all. I just, I'm having a few, a few little vision problems. And so... Yeah, so Patty's always stuck driving, so we're we're not big nighttime people, but we had fun. I yelled, yes. I clapped, yes. right? I startled Patty a few times. Yes, I startled the guy in front of me a few times. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and it was so packed. We got there super early, so we actually got to see American Airlines Center like fill up right yes. before our eyes, and oh my gosh, there were a lot of people there. There was. Do you yeah. remember a few months ago there was? This thing everybody was so frightened of called COVID, you well, wouldn't have known it last well, night. Well, we're kind it's of we're kind like... of moving into post pandemic. You know what it was like? It what? was like the Ash Wednesday service last Wednesday. Oh my goodness! That was so many people came yes. off for that. It was so it was great. A, truly, it was. You know, and then on Sunday we we had communion, and we did communion the pre pandemic way with the intention and the serving and the whole thing, and it was just. It was lovely, really. It was just, it was just wonderful, and it did not seem like it had been two years. Just didn't no, seem didn't. at all like it had been two years since we had done that. Nope. But it had been two years since I just think about my own little world here. Since I had served communion like that to somebody, and it was. It was great. I remember the words and everything. You did. You did. <laughs> you did. So, yes. So we are now in Lent. See, and we're in John's gospel. We're we're coming. We're we're coming ever closer um, to the cross. And yes, so we are. so it's it's good that we're in Lent right now as we come to John chapter eighteen and the nineteen and twenty and twenty one, and we won't be in any hurry. We don't need to be in any hurry through these closing chapters in John's gospel. Um, uh, just just if you want to ask questions or make comments or something just take a moment type a few words yeah please do anytime into the comment section anytime it's it's um it it's what we're here for that's right so. and i remember arthur on sunday saying that in the sermon series over the next few weeks we're going to be looking at that last week of jesus's life through all four gospels wasn't that true yeah, he said we're gonna we're gonna be in the second half of the four yes, of each of yes, the four gospels. Kind of, yeah, yes, yeah. Because the second half is yeah, it's not really quite set up that way. But yeah, um, I hear you. That's 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 what the man said. <laughs> so, so I think I'm we're I think what it. he meant was we're drawing on all the gospels right. here as we close in yes. on on Easter. Yes, something like that. So anyway, anyway, friends, I guess. You have anything else you want to add no, this morning? I do have one quick Bible afternoon. question. Okay, so we know that the Gospels, the four Gospels, all start a little bit differently, and each each person writing one of the Gospels has their own story to tell. Um, is there any big difference in the four Gospels, the Synoptic and then John, that um, the final week of Jesus' life is just like, wow, it's, it says it somewhere, and it's 
really unique compared to what the other Gospels say? Only in the Synoptic Gospels do you get the actual, this is my body, this is my blood. Okay. In John's Gospel, you get the washing of the feet. That's a big difference. That is difference. a big difference, yeah. Um, and I think it's because John knows of at least one of the other Gospels, and he wants to tell the story and emphasize this. Um, without the other Gospel, if all we have with John's Gospel, we, we wouldn't know it was the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay. That they go because he doesn't name the garden, so so John's a little bit more theological. You don't get the same level of confrontations and dialogue with the priest um, in John's gospel as you do in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, uh, but the thrust of it is is the same. John is just going to tell it and in, in his, his way, way. Yeah. right? So because. That's what we all do. We all, whatever happened, like, you know, if we all, if let's assume four of us experienced the same event and then we went away and we wrote about it. We would write right. a true account of the same event, but they wouldn't all be the same account, exactly. right? Right. Because right. we would all choose to bring out different aspects of it because of what, of the story we want to tell. And that's how it is with the four gospels, sir. And it's valuable to us because then it helps us to get to the, I think, the deeper truth and see the, the fuller the, picture. Yeah, the whole, the whole rather thing. than just getting one. It's like that movie. Remember that movie called Vantage Point? Yes. Yes, where you told the same, you you saw the same story told in the course of the movie from like four different perspectives. Right. One and thing happened. Completely different. What? But then you see it, you, the story's told from all four different perspectives. And that's how you get the larger story right with different really vantage points Point. okay all righty all righty question are you glad you asked I'm, i am glad i asked okay so am i i love questions we are very questions pale are today. what i we, we, pale i am well you're it's I it's am. i'm trying to get the you know there you go i don't know you are it's a little light coming in on you there you're suntanned and I look like i've been snowbound <laughs> okay okay Please pray. All right. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be gathered here today. It's, it's such a privilege um, and a blessing to be able to come together this way from various places, online in this way. And we just ask your blessings on our time together. We ask that your Holy Spirit would move among us um, and open these pages up for us and to hear John's telling of Jesus really entering into this, entering into this darkness that will take him into to the cross and let us um, hear in this um, echoes of the darkness that, uh, that we are seeing played out right now on our television screens. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All righty. Scoop this little bench okay, out of your so way. And glad everybody's here. We're all gathered around. I'll reconfigure things just a bit here. So we are going to begin at John chapter 18. 18. We've been in John for a while. Chapter 18, verse 1. Uh, we got a few verses into John last time, but I don't even know why I did that. We're just going to go back. And so now we're going to come to this garden. And, and as we saw last week... Um, 
the guard, the Gethsemane name is not given to us. We know the name of the garden from the other Gospels, but not from John's. So maybe a way to begin, and I think this is, this is part of what John is doing, is contrasting two gardens. Two gardens. The Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. You see, in the Garden of Eden, um, all is right and good until the um, humans rebel against God and do the one thing that God asked them, told them not to do. Here in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's a garden that will be overcome by the darkness. The darkness. And you see, um, Je you, we will see Jesus enter into that darkness willingly. He will choose to do so. He doesn't have to do so. There are ways to avoid what happens in chapter 18. Jesus could easily escape out the east, across the eastern side of the Mount of Olives and disappear. Um, when David is running away from King Saul, that's what he does. David runs away from King Saul, and then there's like 10 chapters or so where Saul is trying to find David in camp because if you've been to that part of the world, you know that it is quite, there's a lot of wilderness and a lot of places, and there's lots of caves, and there's just it's just, it's just the kind of land that's easy to disappear in. But Jesus doesn't disappear. He stays. And he will enter into that darkness and the contrast between the kingdom of God and the ways of this world will begin to play out just right there in the garden that, that night. And it is at nighttime. So let's start at chapter 18 verse 1 um, remember the previous chapters uh, 14 15 16 17 have been the 14 15 and 16 are the long discourse Jesus talking with his disciples he does most of the talking and then chapter 17 is that long prayer from Jesus about what is it the what is a prayer encompass what is about to happen his praise for the believers, and basically he prays for you and me. He prays for those who will, the believers of the future, if you want to put it that way. Okay? But now in 18, we the narrative continues. So, when he, chapter 18, verse 1, when he, Jesus, had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. And I, last week I brought several photos. Um, this is the map again of where the Garden of Gethsemane is. The huge Temple Mount is on the western side of the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley runs between that eastern wall and the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane is down in the bottom of that valley. So he is going to leave the city, exit through the wall, and down into the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's where he and his disciples went. Um, 
And as I said last week, it's a beautiful place. This is what's there today. It's an olive, it's a grove of olive trees. This is the, these are the trees next to the um, uh, Cathedral of All Nations, the Church of All Nations. There is more garden on the other side of that building, and there is garden back where the, at the bottom of the screen. There's a little street there, and you cross the street um, to cross the bottom of, of your screen, and there's more garden there. Okay, so that whole thing encompasses the Garden of Gethsemane. At the time, it was a working um, garden for the making of olive oil and such things. So here's another little picture. that I think Robin Pratt took this picture on one of our trips um, of the Garden of Gethsemane. It's just a lovely, beautiful place. Um, and it's a place that Jesus and the disciples visit. So, okay. Verse 2, now Judas, who betrayed Jesus, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. I was wrong last week when I said that these were all temple police. They're not all temple police. Um, it includes some Roman soldiers. Okay. And the reason um, it does is because the Romans were charged with keeping the peace. And so the word soldiers, and you, this is clearer in verse 12, I think, which we didn't get to. But there are some Romans, there are Jewish um, uh, police, uh, some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And it's a whole arresting party. I guess that's what matters. It's a whole arresting party. They leave the city wall. They walked down at night. They're carrying torches, lanterns, weapons. Everybody would see them coming. They've got lanterns and torches. It's nighttime. They're not sneaking up. They're not sneaking their way to the garden. There's nothing covert about this. <laughs> Jesus has ample time to see them coming. You could see them coming. A blind dog practically could see them coming. That, that's one of the things when you're there in person at the garden and you can just look across the Kidron Valley and realize. Yeah, sure that they Jesus, can see him. It, there's no surprise here. Yeah. They're coming. Everybody, Jesus certainly knows who they are. He knows what's coming. He knows that his hour has come. And he just waits for them. So, verse 4 Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, he knows his hour has come. Is there something um, from the mind of God in this knowing? Maybe. But I'm, I basically believe that this, this, doesn't take, this doesn't take much more than good common sense to see what's coming. It's, things have come to a head this whole week between Palm Sunday and, and Easter. And Patty was asking earlier, what if we didn't have the synoptic gospels and only had john what would we not know well one thing we wouldn't know is the depths of some of those confrontations john doesn't john doesn't dwell on those but in the synoptics matthew mark and luke they do and you get a lot of these confrontations and so you can really sense the tension building okay so Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out. He goes out to greet him. 
He's not running away. He goes out to greet them. So let me ask you, in this night, in this darkness, you see, that's even a theme, right? What is John's gospel? What's a big theme in John's gospel? Light and darkness. You're in the darkness until you step into the light. Now the garden is given over to what? Darkness. Because Jesus' hour has come. And who's in charge? Who's controlling events? I imagine if you ask if you ask the soldiers and the chief priests, they would insist that they are controlling events. They're not controlling events at all. They're not in charge here. They're not they're they're not the key mover of of the events that are happening here. It's Jesus. He's there. He certainly sees them coming. Now when they get down toward the garden, which they're headed for because Judas was betraying Jesus, Jesus steps out to greet them. Jesus is in control. He is not a victim here. I was asked about this a, a, a bit in depth on in my Sunday class. Jesus is Jesus is in control. He's not a victim. The but the only way that he could avoid the cross, avoid the execution, let me change the words, the only way he could avoid being arrested and executed by the Romans is if he disappeared and was unfaithful to the vocation given him by God. But he was faithful. He was true. He didn't turn away. He didn't, he didn't shrink away as the stakes got higher and higher and higher. He stays. And he will be the truth teller. He has been the truth teller. He will be the truth teller. Um, and that will take him to the cross. But he's not a victim. Scott, I just wanted yeah. to I, I put a little message there for people. Um, yesterday Facebook was absolutely perfect not a problem today it kind of keeps going off and on and a few minutes ago it told me your video ended and it completely cut me out so I just had to go back and rekey you up and there you were right so but I don't... imagine a lot of people out there probably aren't, aren't having that problem they may not be I just wanted people to know if that's what if that happens to them they just have to go out and just come back in and click on your link and there you'll be okay thank you so, verse 4, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? <laughs> He's going to put them on the spot, right? I mean, he knows why they're there. They know why they're there. He would see Judas with them. Who is it you want? He's going to make them say it. Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, which is just as, that, I mean, that's the way you know people. Right? It's where he's from. It's his first name. It's a very common name. Jesus, Yeshua is very common. One of the most common. It's the same name. It, it's, it's also the name Joshua, rendered differently in English. Um, uh, it's Yeshua in the Hebrew. Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. And then Jesus says, I am he. I am he, the ego in me, I am he. And John tells us that Judas the traitor was standing there with them. 
when Jesus says this. And then John goes back to the narrative and he says, when Jesus said, I am he, they all, they drew back and fell to the ground. So, I almost think that if you were there and you ask them why they fell to the ground, this arresting party, I don't know that they could articulate it. The truth is, of course, they find themselves in the presence of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the truth of what is happening at the garden. That God has come into the darkness. And so their response is utterly appropriate. But I don't know that it's even conscious on their part. They're just awestruck in the moment. Sadly, do they overcome their awe? They do. Yeah. We can do that ourselves right you can find yourself awestruck and yet you can talk your way out of it overcome it press on get back to the way of things get back to the real world real world and all the rest of it um but they 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 drew back and they fell to the ground it it helps to i think that moment helps to And the reason John includes it is because it helps for it helps us grasp something of the cosmic nature of what's really happening in the garden. You know, behind this arresting party stands the spiritual forces of wickedness. And and Jesus has come for this confrontation. And even there, in that place, these men drew back and fall to the ground when Jesus says, I am he. Because I am, of course, is the name of God given to Moses at the burning bush. So verse 7, again he asked him, who is it you want? He's going to make him say it again, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. Jesus is the good shepherd. They are his sheep. He has pledged himself to caring for them and guarding them and protecting them. Go back to chapter 15 and 16 and 17 and you'll see Jesus repeating to the Father that you gave these, that you gave me these people that I am to protect. And so that is what he is, that is what he is doing. You know, there is an echo here. Um, I think John probably intends us to hear all these echoes. Who else said, let these people go? Moses. Yeah. You know, I. it's easy to say, well, not John couldn't really mean that. Jesus couldn't really mean that. 
but I don't know. The longer I do this, I think I think we should really we should we should hear these echoes in Scripture. The, um, these these are Jews, and and their scriptures are just woven into their being. If they can read, it's the principal way they learn to read. It's the principal motivation to read. Okay. Um, and even if they can't read, this is this is what they hear these over and over. They hear the stories. They hear the words. How many times do you have the Jews of Jesus' day heard the story of Moses, the story of freedom and liberty, the bonds of slavery to Pharaoh broken? I'm sure you couldn't count how many times they had heard the story. So now Jesus says, if you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Okay? Which comes from earlier in, in, in John's gospel. Well, Simon Peter responds in a very predictable way. Predictable in this world, certainly. This man, Jesus, whom Peter loves um, and who he thinks he's ready to stand by in all events, right? He's promised him he will stand by in all events. The arresting party is here and Simon Peter is going to protect Jesus, he thinks. So Simon Peter, who at the time was carrying a sword, he had a sword with him, drew it and struck the high priest servant, cutting off his right ear, the servant's name was Malchus. But Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? The way forward is not the way of the sword. It is the way of suffering. Jesus is not there to do this the way the world does it. That's not God's way. The suffering comes when this peaceful, loving, gentle man Jesus confronts the evil powers of this world. That's what creates the suffering. But better that path than the path of picking up the sword. And so, Jesus tells Peter, you know, put the sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus is bringing in, Jesus is ushering in the kingdom of God. Um, I, I saw a quote the other day um, that went like this. I can't remember who said it. In the kingdom of God, there are things worth dying for. There are never things worth killing for. And it's why you can find in Scripture certainly support for pacifism. There have always been Christian pacifists. They don't invent it out of thin air. 
They can go to their scripture and walk you through the way, you know, the, the scriptural basis for their pacifism. Um, I am not a pacifist. Um, I, I think the pacifism that stands by when violence is being done to innocence is, is what a theologian would call an over-realized eschatology. It imagines that the kingdom of God has come fully in Christ. Well, it has arrived in Christ already, you see, but not yet. We still live within an age of sin and death, and I think that brings with it some responsibility to to protect the innocent, the innocent. This has been on my mind lately because of because of what is happening in Ukraine, and I wonder, you know, what is the proper Christian response to what is happening in Ukraine? Should we use, could we use, violence in defense of the innocents in Ukraine? And I always think of the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know how the parable goes, right? The basic premise is there's this guy, and he's beaten up by robbers. And then a priest comes along and ignores him. A Levi comes along and ignores him. And then it's a Samaritan of all people, of all people. <laughs> the guy the Jews despise, a Samaritan, understands who his neighbor is and renders aid and help and comfort to the beaten man um, and goes over the top to do so. That's basically the parable. So I, I wonder sometimes, what if the parable were different? What if the Good Samaritan came along while the man was being beaten and the Samaritan had the means to stop it, even if it meant employing violence to do it? Should the Samaritan just sit down on a hillside and see if they kill the guy? See if there's something left of him to help? Is that the way? Is that the way forward? Gosh, you know, I I don't have any easy answers. I, I think that one of the best people who I've read about this is Richard Hayes. He Richard Hayes is um, a theologian, biblical scholar on Paul at Duke Seminary, elder in the Methodist Church, was kind of a, ooh, I think he lived in a commune or something for a while in his 20s. But he is... He's a pacifist. What I like about him and his approach to this is he says, I am a pacifist, but I acknowledge that I really get a free ride. That there are people willing and ready to protect my wife and my kids. And see right there, he's on the nub of the problem, isn't he? He's right there on the nub of the problem. And here with Peter... Sure, Peter picks up a sword. He's ready to protect Jesus, who's going to be arrested. We know what lies ahead. Peter ought to have a sense, ought to have some sense of what lies ahead, that Jesus is going to be arrested, and they want to be rid of him, which means they're going to get rid of him. And he's ready to defend Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate innocent. He hasn't done anything. But no, it's not the way of the sword. Jesus tells him to put it away. It's the way of suffering. Scott, you have a, a comment from Lynn Lawton. And yeah. And it was kind of second there by Susan. 
if John is emphasizing Jesus is in control of this situation, why does he not include Jesus's healing of the ear as Luke does in his gospel? Does it? Well, I don't know. I don't know. Perhaps John has forgotten that piece. Per, because to me, I'm with you, Lynn, it would fit. I don't know. Patty, would you write that down on my index card for John? I'll ask him someday. John? Okay. Alrighty. <laughs> I got it. I, I, I don't know. You know, it's one of the, yeah. You would think maybe it's just, maybe that is not what actually made the big impression on John. Um, maybe John isn't, isn't there at that moment, right? And so he's telling the story that he was told and Len leaves that out because John probably almost certainly does show up in person with Peter later, but we don't know exactly who's where when. Good question. Don't know. Don't know. But yes, in Luke's gospel, Jesus heals the fellow because, well, this it's not the way of the sword. And maybe it's just, maybe John doesn't include that because what John wants us to grasp, to focus on, is this statement by Jesus, put your sword away, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus, it, it's To me, that that's the second part of that verse is a little bit like when, um, in the synoptics, when, when Peter, when Jesus challenges Peter and says, well, who do you think I am? And Peter says, well, you are the Messiah. And then Jesus begins talking about, well, the Messiah is going to have to be lifted up and be dead for three days and all this stuff. And and Peter says, no, 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 no. And Jesus, I always picture him kind of spinning and looking at Peter and saying, get behind me, Satan. You know, don't tempt me to turn away from this. Because it's, it's a hard road that Jesus is walking here. And he doesn't need Peter tempting him to to take a different path. And so here, he just tells Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Because he is going to. Verse 12. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. Let me just say one other thing. The, you notice how short the Gethsemane account is? Yeah, very Compared short. to the synoptics? Yeah. Why is that? I'm imagining it's not a point that he needs to... And know. maybe John, the writer, gospel writer, the disciple whom Jesus loved, wasn't there. And so he's telling the story, but he's telling the story as he heard it from, from other disciples. Could be that. Could be that. Seems unusual, though, to me that he wouldn't be there, having just been with Jesus at the last meal. And... Yeah, but in the in synoptics, there are only three disciples who are who fall asleep, whose names we are explicitly given when right. when they fall asleep when Jesus is praying in the garden. True. And that's Peter, John, and James. And those John and James, those are the sons of Zebedee. That's not this John. This is a different John than than John, the son of Zebedee. You know. Probably. I have to say probably to everything, don't I? Because 
we don't really know. Right, I mean, goodness, right. the, the, the gospel doesn't even have the name John anywhere in it. That's something the church added to it. There are scholars who don't think the, the writer of the gospel or the beloved disciple is John at all. So, and, yeah, or that the writer of the gospel we call John is not the disciple Jesus loved. So, all I'm saying is stay humble about all that stuff. Don't think we have all the answers to every question we can ask. Verse 12. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. That's what they came for. They bound him. That's a strong word. They put him in, they tied him up. They tied his hands together. They bound him. Um, there's another famous story from the book of Genesis about binding, and that's the story of Abraham and Isaac. It's sometimes called the binding of Isaac. When God comes to Abraham and tells him he's going to sacrifice Isaac. So could John have that in mind when he uses the word here like bound? Probably, maybe. Because what is the story? This is the story of, of sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Right? Isaac is not sacrificed. God intervenes. But in this story, I mean, with what happens to Jesus, he, he is sacrificed. And God does not, does not intervene in that way. Jesus will die on that cross. But they bound him. And they brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. So, at that time, the priest, the office of the high priest was a family office. It was something passed down to father and son. So, Annas, so Caiaphas is currently the high priest, but Annas had been high priest. Some, some years before, but still, he would be the 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 senior the what would we call him now nowadays we would call him the high priest emeritus maybe mm -hmm. something like that and so he and his son are are you know the high priests of israel that's that's pretty easy for me to get the one in the office at the current time is caiaphas and caiaphas was the one who would advise the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Remember that that earlier verse in John's yes. Gospel when the great irony of saying, wouldn't it be better that one man die, Jesus, to get the Romans off our backs, basically, is what Caiaphas was talking about, <coughs> rather than all the people. The irony being, well, that is what's going to happen here. One man is going to die. And it is going to be for the rescue of not merely the Jews, but the rescue of humanity. Writ large, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only son. John writes in 3.16. So they're arresting him. They're going to take him first to Annas. Um, <coughs> why that? Why? Hard to say. Um, uh, no, the gospel accounts aren't completely consistent about 
the exact order of things here. Okay, so there we have it. They're just they're just not. Um, it's not their purpose to be. So we're now coming upon to Peter's denial. Now, I'm going to tell you the way John writes this, so you can see it happening. When I was preparing for today, I learned a new word. It's not a word I'll probably ever use again. Intercalation. <laughs> wow. uh, the, the commentary said this this next section, you know, the author is using intercalation. I said, wow, okay, what is that? So what he does, what, what John does is you get Peter, then you get Jesus, then you get Peter. He's breaking up the story, Peter's story and Jesus' story, and inserting them sort of like A, B, A, B. Why? So that in our mind's eye, in our mind's eye, these two stories of Jesus before the priest and Peter's denial are happening at the same time. And it's a bit like, um, in, my, in my mind's eye, when Peter is out in the courtyard and he's denying Jesus right there inside the house in a room where Jesus is aware of what is happening about outside, Jesus is being questioned by, by the high priest. They're happening at the same time. And how do you how do you illustrate that? Well, you you weave a you weave the stories together, A B, A B, A B. Novels do that all the time now. You know, they'll skip back and forth, back and forth in short in short bits. I just never knew that it had a fancy name. Now I do. Intercalation. All right. So Peter's first denial, verse 15. Simon Peter and another disciple. Who is that? That is probably the writer of the gospel. It's probably John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And, and, Part of the reason you might say that is because of the amount of detail that we're about to get, that we didn't get so much of in the Garden of Gethsemane account. The Garden of Gethsemane account is pretty sparse. Deep theology, comparing darkness and light, the presence of God, the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane, but the detail is sparse compared to the amount we get in the synoptics. But here... We're going to get some detail. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Now, because this disciple was known to the high priest, hmm, interesting, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. Gosh, I'd like to know more about that. We're not told more. That's all we're told. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. So, somehow, this other disciple... Maybe it's the young John, let's work on that premise, actually knows the priestly family, the high priestly family. They, he knows Annas and Caiaphas somehow. Well, we don't know. So he is allowed in with Jesus. But Peter has to wait outside. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back 
spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. So now, Peter's in the courtyard, brought in by somebody who is allowed to do that, by the, the high priest and the guards and stuff there. So, so Jesus is going to enter the household of the high priest, where the, um, what, the court is gathered, as it were, and uh, Peter's going to be outside in the courtyard. Most homes of that time, um, of people of the least means, if they could afford it, they had a courtyard. Because it's a, it's a beautiful climate for much of the year. And so they would, you know, they would go up on their roof sometimes. They would have a courtyard. Um, but the physical structure would be smaller. So there's the courtyard there. And that, that, that's, where, that's where Peter is. So, the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. And she asked Peter, Well, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? He replied, I am not. Denial number one. Remember, Jesus had said to Peter, You'll deny me three times before the cock crows. So here's the first time. That's where Peter finds himself. He's stunned. It's not supposed to be working this way. He's like any Jew of his day. The Messiah was supposed to come in power and might and glory. And everybody was supposed to rally around the Messiah who would kick out the damn Romans and, 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 and cleanse the temple. But that isn't happening. Instead, he's being arrested. He's being arrested. And Peter, being weak, as we all can be, replies, I am not. You can't miss the contrast between Jesus. When Jesus asked the arresting party, who are you looking for? They say Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he. Peter is asked, aren't you one of this man's disciples? What does he say? I am not. It was cold. And the servants and the officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. It's cold because it's nighttime. It's cold because it's early April. It's during the time of the Passover. Passover happens in, you know, usually early April-ish. Jerusalem is at 2,500 feet um, in elevation. Um, it's still a time of year where it can be pretty chilly there. And they're standing around a fire to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. And you can see how John, the gospel writer, paints the picture for us. Yeah, Linda says, it's interesting, it's stunning that Peter cut off the servant's ear, but now denies him. It's like he doesn't know what to do without the sword. You see, that, with the sword, he's willing to fight. He's got a sword in his hand. He is ready to fight. But when Jesus has put the sword away, when Jesus has put the sword away, Peter doesn't know what to do. Is he expected to drink from the cup of suffering? Is, is he supposed to embrace 
I mean, he knows what happens. As Arthur mentioned in his sermon last Sunday, there are, um, there were other would-be messiahs before and after Jesus. People knew what happened to the followers of would-be messiahs because all the would-be messiahs met bad ends. One of the most well-known is Judas the Galilean. He's mentioned in the New Testament. He met a bad end, by which I meant he had his head cut off. And his followers were then rounded up because the Romans didn't tolerate rebel movements, rebel <laughs> kings, rebel alliances, for you Star Wars fans. They just didn't. And, and they put an end to it, and they rounded up the, 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 the supporters. Um, and, of course, the only threatening supporters in such a world are the men, not youths, not women. Um, they would round up men and execute them or crucify them. Everybody knew this was how it worked. And so Peter's, without the sword, he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't want to suffer. He doesn't want, he's not ready to walk that path. Verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. So now we cut scene. I guess that's what they called the movies, Patty? They cut scene. We cut scene from Peter to go inside Caiaphas, um, uh, the house, Caiaphas's house, really, is where they seem to be meeting. Meanwhile, the high priest, Anna seems to be in charge, the high priest, it doesn't matter, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teachings, and Jesus replied, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple, spent a lot of time in the temple courtyards in John's Gospel, where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. You know? And he knows that's the truth. He knows everybody knows what he said. He knows everybody knows why he's there. It's not some big mystery. It's not some big mystery that he's there. He knows. Everybody knows. They've been after him. They've been challenging him. Stronger and stronger and stronger. They've already decided they want him, they want him dead. They want to be rid of him. Well, nonetheless, when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby him slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded as if Jesus is not showing the high priest enough respect. What is the irony? He slaps God in the face for not showing enough respect to, the, to God's high priest. That's the irony of what's happening here. But Jesus went on, If I said something wrong, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? And there it ends. This, this, this brief confrontation. I kind of like 
the the account we get in John because it's so brief. It just it it's a fait accompli. When Judas leads them to Jesus, the path they're on is the path they're going to stay on. It doesn't matter what Jesus said there. You know, his hour has come. He has been faithful to God. He's going to remain faithful to God. And now he is at the place where that has brought him, where his faithfulness has brought him, and he is going to drink from the cup of suffering. So Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And meanwhile, Simon Peter was st still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? As they're all standing at the fire, warm, moving their hands, you know, trying to keep warm. You are, they look at him and say, well, you aren't one of, one of his disciples too, are you? And oh, he denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? And again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. You know, Peter's known for many things. He's, many people see him as the rock on which Jesus will build his church. He's the, he's the, the, the founder of the church in Rome. All these different ways. But, wow, this, this is what Peter is known for, too. Denying Jesus three times before the cock crows. And I think one of the most powerful testaments to the power of the Holy Spirit is that Peter told this story about himself. He told this story about himself. How do we know that? We know that because Mark's Gospel is probably Peter's eyewitness testimony written down by John Mark. And in Mark, you get the denial of the story of the denial of Christ by Peter. So Peter told this story himself about his denial of Christ. Not once, not twice, but three times that very that very night, the night of the arrest. In the wee hours of the morning, three times. And you will see when we come to the end of John's Gospel how that is turned around by Jesus. But we'll leave that as a cliffhanger. So, then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas and Annas okay, to the palace of the Roman governor. And he's probably, probably at um, uh, the palace that is Herod's palace there in ancient Jerusalem. Because 
Pontius Pilate wouldn't typically be in Jerusalem. He would be out on the coast at Caesarea Maritima, a very Jewish, I mean, a very Roman place. Jerusalem's too Jewish. But it's Passover, so he comes with more troops to keep the peace. Now, by now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace. Oh, yes, you see, these people are about to crucify Jesus. They don't want to enter the palace of this pagan so that because you know they don't want to become ritualistically unclean it's just just so it's just so crazy it just boggles the mind they don't want to enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the passover but they're willing to crucify jesus they're willing to turn him over to the to the romans and have him killed that's okay <laughs> but they don't ah <sighs> We humans, we humans. So Pilate, being very sensitive to Jewish sensibilities, that's what he had learned when he had come to, to Judea as governor. He needed to be sensitive to their sensibilities. A couple of times in his tenure in Rome, he was called in Jerusalem, he was called back to Rome to stand for account because he kind of blew into Jerusalem a little too much on the tough side. And it created problems, and and but that's not what the Romans want. They want the problems kept, the peace kept. And so, yeah, he came out to meet them. And he said to them, well, okay, well, what are the charges you are bringing against this man? And they replied, if he were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. And Pilate says to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Now, the question always comes up, well, I mean, why does Pilate rebuff them in this way? Couple of thoughts. First of all, don't ever imagine it's because of Pilate's concern about an innocent life. Life is cheap, cheap, cheap in this world. Life is as cheap to Pilate as it is to Vladimir Putin. Doesn't matter. Right? No. The historians of the first century, Philo of Alexandria and Josephus, say that Pilate did this just out of spite. That's, that's the underlying deal here. And that makes sense. Because you see, he came in as governor, got himself in trouble because of the the. the the priests and um, complaining and he just doesn't want to do what they want to tell him to do. I get, you know, I sort of get that. They tell him to do X, he's going to do Y. So he's just, his first reaction is, well, I'm just not going to do what you want because I don't want to do what you want me to do. So you take care of him. This is your problem. Judge him by your own law. And then they objected, we have no right to execute anyone and they didn't. Um, under Roman rule and the agreement that they had, the agreements they had entered into with Jewish leadership, capital punishment was reserved for um, the Romans. The, the Jewish leadership couldn't execute people as the penalty, as, as, as a punishment. Um, 
And as far as we know historically, that, that's pretty much how it worked out. Now you might say to me, well, okay, but they stoned Stephen to death and they're threatening to stone that woman in John 7, the adulterous woman. What about those? Well, there's been no court of law. It's not a punishment administered by a court of any kind. Those are like, those are like lynchings. Stephen is in essence lynched in Acts 7. It's not, a, not any sense of Jesus being turned over to the high priest and then carted over and taken and put before Pilate. And so, so anyway, the Jewish leadership, they know, what, they know what the rule is, and so they take Jesus to Pilate. I guess they don't think that they're sinning themselves by not wanting to do the act themselves, basically just handing him over saying, we can't kill him, but you can well, kill him for us. Well, they, I mean, it, it is the agreement that they made with the Romans that they didn't have the power of capital punishment. Mm -hmm. So if they're going to want Jesus dead, Someone else is and they're not just going to gonna stone him to death like lynch him, okay, they're going to have to have the Romans do it. They're going to have to have the governor do it because they don't have the power to impose that penalty. So they say we don't have the right to execute anyone, which is basically true. Then verse 25, this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Now what's that, what Jesus is talking about? Remember the several times in John's gospel when Jesus said he was going to be lifted up? That, that lifting up that Jesus had talked about earlier, that lifting up was the cross. The cross lifts one up. Right? So, there we have it. Is there any, some, I guess I was again on Sunday. Was it the only way the Romans executed people? No. They would cut heads off and stuff. But typically, with a rebel king of some kind, they would crucify him because it's so public and so awful, it's supposed to scare other people into, into obeying Rome. I haven't told this story in a long time. Went down to a city in Mexico, Guanajuato maybe. I don't know. There's this old fortress there. And at each corner of the fortress, we can see them up there. They're still there. There are these iron cages. Well, the story was that, you know, sort of what we would call enemies of the state would be put in these iron cages as punishment and just left there for everybody to see. This is what happens. This is what happens. You know, Josephus tells us that the Romans crucified a couple of thousand people along the roadsides of Galilee when Jesus was about 10 to put down a tax revolt against Rome. See, this is what happens. And that's why crucifixion was public. It was done typically at a crossroads. It was done at a place where a lot of people would see it. So don't picture this happening in a distant, remote place where they crucified Jesus. That's not it. That would not serve the purpose of crucifixion. Did Jesus know all of this? 
before? Of course he did. They all knew this. All the Jews were well acquainted with all of this. You know, what? not too long ago, yeah, not too long ago, they found the remains of a person who had been crucified by the Romans. And sure enough, you know, when they dug the skeleton up, it was laying there kind of in a fetal position in, in the grave, but there was a there was an iron nail driven through the ankles, which would have been the nail driven through the ankles into the cross. So everybody's well acquainted with what this means. And so Jesus said, said, I will be lifted up. So Pilate then went back inside the palace and he summoned Jesus and he asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Because you see, that's the relevant Roman question. He doesn't care about all that Jewish stuff. <laughs> are you the king of the Jews? Which translates to, are you the Messiah? Because remember, Messiah means anointed one. Kings were anointed. Those are all synonyms. Are you the Messiah? Are you the anointed one? Are you the king of the Jews? And guess what? In the Roman Empire, there's only one king. Who is that? Caesar. So Jesus says to Pilate, this Roman governor type, is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? And Pilate says, am I a Jew? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? I, that part I get. I, mean, I imagine Pilate is wondering, I mean, really, like, what have you done that they brought you to me? And would Pilate understand most of what is swirling on with Jesus and the priests? No, because he's not Jewish. So Jesus tells him, well, you know, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, as Peter wanted to. But now my kingdom is from another place. So what does Jesus mean? So there are various alternatives that people will sometimes offer up. That, well, the kingdom of God is just an internal spiritual deal um, with each person and their relationship with God. Well, that can't be right, because what does that have to do with resurrection? The resurrection of Jesus is the key to this whole thing. But what that have to do? What my, what will my internal spiritual state have to do with the resurrection of Jesus or my own resurrection one day? So no, that isn't it. Maybe it's speaking of, you know, this time when everything about the kingdom is is only far off in the future. But that doesn't work. That falls apart almost immediately because what does Jesus say? Ah, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Believe in the good news. Jesus has been ushering the kingdom of God in all along. So no, that doesn't work. So what does it mean? Here's what it means. It means that the kingdom of God is not of this world, meaning it doesn't work the way this world works. This world works by swords and, you know, bullies and strong guys and those who have a lot of money and all this kind of stuff, okay? That's how this world works. 
You're seeing it on display right now in Ukraine. So don't tell me it isn't. But Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's from another place. Because you see, the 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 it's like the, it's like what? It's like the it's like the physics are different. See the physics of this world, right? Governed by gravity and all that kind of stuff. Well, the kingdom of God is still governed by gravity because it comes to this world. But the way but what but but power in our world is the sword in the kingdom of God, the sword has no place because the swords have been beaten into plowshares. So, so Jesus's kingdom that he's been ushering in, in which he is the king of the cosmos, the Lord of the cosmos, it's not of this world of sin and death. It is from another place. It is from, it is the kingdom of God. Which, you know, that's what he's talking about. Um, did my explanation make some sense over there, Patty? Yes, it did. Okay. Yeah. So Pilate then says, well, you are a king then. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. And now Pilate finds himself drawn into a philosophical discussion. What is truth? retorted Pilate. And with this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. He wants to, <laughs> he wants to talk philosophy or something. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release, quote, the king of the Jews? And the crowd who's gathered outside the balcony of the palace shouts back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas, the son of Abbas. Interestingly, that means the son of father. Because Abba, Abba means father. Paul says we can call God Abba, means Father. Bar Jesus is, Jesus would be Jesus Bar Joseph. Okay. No, give us Barabbas. Barabbas had taken part in an uprising, and um, he's a rebel. And and so the crowd has turned on Jesus. It's not so much John's focus. You know, John's focus is really very much on Jesus. Um, in the synoptics, you are better prepared for the crowd turning on Jesus between Palm Sunday. In, in the synoptics, if you read the Palm Sunday account and then you go to the crucifixion account and look what's in between, you get lots of growing confrontation, right? Lots of stories and lots of parables and so forth, leading up to the crowd's rejection of Jesus. In John, not so much. In John, you go from Palm Sunday pretty much right to the eve of the crucifixion with the last meal and, and the washing of the feet and then the long discourse by Jesus. 
that's where that that that's what John gives us. So it could it could kind of catch you off guard, but it shouldn't. It's it's the world's way. No, not Jesus. Give us Barabbas. Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Barabbas was a rebel. So when we come together next week, um, we'll be in chapter nineteen and Pilate. We're not done with Pilate. Um, he will he will sentence Jesus to be to be crucified. And these will be hard chapters to to know. To go through that it's hard every time, every time we do it in Lent and leading up to you know, but but we must. Um, I find that in a lot of pockets of Christian America, this kind of stuff just gets left out. There's just not much about suffering or um, there, there's no Lent, there's no Ash Wednesday, there's no Monday Thursday, there's no Good Friday. You just kind of zoom from Palm Sunday to Easter and. No, read John's gospel. Jesus' way is the way of the cup, not the way of the sword. Yes. So anyway, that's all. We'll be back here next Tuesday. We will. Tuesday to do, yes. <laughs> we will. Thank you um, all for being with us today as um, Scott went through this gospel with us. Tough times right now. Tough times. Tough times in this world. Tough times. I did have one prayer request that came to me yesterday, and we did pray for this person on yesterday, but um, we're also going to pray today. Um, we told them that we would, and the person is um, Tommy Lee. Jamie Lee, his wife, had sent the prayer request um, because he is having surgery this Thursday to remedy a very uh, chronic problem he has had with diverticulitis. And so we're going to pray for his doctors, um, that all the surgery goes well, no complications, and that Tommy has a full healing from a condition that he suffered from for a really long time. Hmm. So um, we hope to see you guys on Sunday, if not before then. And if you would join with me as we close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you, God. We thank you for the freedom that we have in our country to be able to do this today, to be able to study your word, to have somebody explain things to us a little deeper than we would have probably ever seen on our own, and a chance to um, ask questions and see where other people's thoughts are. And we are so grateful for that, Lord. This is a time when we, we can see it so clearly how blessed we are to have our freedoms, our freedoms of speech, our freedom of religion, to have the internet, to be able to see what's really happening, to be able to learn from the internet right now. And Lord, we just, we, we truly pray God for our world. I know what's happening, Lord, must make you so very sad. It, I know it has to, this beautiful world that you've created. We pray God right now for those that are suffering so poorly, so badly, Lord, in Ukraine. We pray God for just your healing hand on the those that have been hurt in so many ways, some physically, some mentally, this emotional anguish of leaving family members behind. We pray, God, for your comfort to each and every one of them, Lord. 
We thank you, God, for all those that are assisting in so many ways in an outreach and to the people of Poland who have been so gracious in their welcome of all of these close to two million Ukrainians. We pray, Lord, for you to soften the hearts of those that are causing all this pain, Lord, all this suffering, all this grief, all this hatred. We know, Lord, that for a peaceful ending to come, it has to be, Lord, from you. We pray, God, that you would just help everyone, as I said, Lord, everybody who's been involved in this, Lord, not to give up, to continue to assist and to continue to assist long, long after this, this battle is over. We love you, Lord. We thank you, God, for loving us. We pray, God, that you would hold us close to you and also as well our own families and our friends. We pray, God, that you would keep us safe and healthy. And we pray, God, every day for your wisdom and your discernment in our lives to help us make good choices, Lord, and to set an example that we are we are trying our best to live a more Christ-like life. Excuse me, Christ-like life. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Bye. Thank you, everybody. Bye, friends. Adios. Have a good day.